this morning comes from Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus speaking to the disciples, he says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Reminded of uh, the, the theme of lamps and oil and lamps and wicks running throughout the all of Scripture. Christ calls us to keep our lamps, lamps lit, that we as Christians are to be in readiness. And just as in the Old Testament where it was prescribed um, in the tabernacle, in the temple, the, the priests were to keep oil in the lamps and keep them burning, keep the wicks trimmed. So also we as Christians are to come before the Lord regularly, seek out the oil of His grace because we're needed. That's needed in order for us to be in readiness, to live in, uh, in line with the gospel. Um, so we come this morning to gather, uh, to, to fill our hearts with the oil of God's grace that we might keep our lamps lit. Because it's not in our own efforts that we do that, but it's by His grace that we ask for His power to live in the way that He's called us to in light of the great gospel that we know and that we believe in. Let's pray. Father God, what a blessing it is to know Jesus and to have the opportunity to to fill the vessels, vessel of our soul with the oil of your grace and mercy as we worship you in song this morning, as we think about the gospel, as we think about Jesus, as we think about the weight of our sin and the sin of the world and the magnitude of the salvation that we have through the shed blood of Jesus. What a blessing it is to live this side of the cross to not look forward to the coming of Jesus, but to look back upon his death, burial, and resurrection and what that gives to us, but also to look forward to his return. When death will be defeated, when sin and sadness and, and suffering and pain will be no more for those who have faith in him. Your word says it's appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. What a blessing it is to know that if we have faith in Christ, he has taken that judgment upon himself. And yet we are still called not to be lazy, but to be stand in readiness and to keep our lamps lit. Father, you have called us to live in such a way that our light shines so that others would see our good works and give glory to you. Father, that's only possible if we draw upon the well of oil of your grace daily and regularly, that we trim the burnt ends of the wick, the Father, that give the smoke that's tainted with our own brokenness and our own weakness, our own remnant of sin, and ask that you light it again daily. It's the only way we can be ready. Lest we be like the parable of the ten virgins who failed to bring oil and missed the coming of the groom. Fathers, we come today. Keep us ready. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.
fast And I could never keep my hold Through life's fearful path For my love is often cold He will hold me fast He will hold me fast He will hold me fast For my Savior loves me so are his delight Christ will hold me fast precious in his holy sight he will hold me fast he'll not let my soul be lost his promises shall last bought by him at such a cost he will hold me fast, He will hold me fast, He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raise with him to endless life. He will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight. This blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on the judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior. my righteousness the lamb who is my righteousness and I will go 
We've been talking about people. We've been talking about humans, what it means to be made in the image of God. Okay, we've talked about that. We've talked about sin uh, and where it came from, how that image of God was broken. Okay, and then last week we talked about how the sin of Adam and Eve, how that spread to everyone, right? Because we talked about not everybody, not everybody ate from the same fruit in the tree. So how is it that we are sinners? Um, if we didn't eat from that same fruit. So we talked about that last week. Okay, that was last week. All right. Um, so we talked about that last week. So this week, we're going to talk about what is the punishment for sin. Okay. Now, this is not a fun lesson. Okay. How many of you have seen pictures of like a big forest fire? What like after a forest fire? What do you notice after a forest fire has gone through a, a forest? What do you what do you notice? What do you see? Burn down trees? What do you see? Okay, dead animals, ashes, yeah, what do you see? What color is it? What color is everything? Okay, not, maybe brown, what else? Black, right, gray, is it a pretty picture? No, 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 no. Now, if in a picture of that, you, you see maybe a month later, you see one green plant coming up. That, what do you what do you feel like when you when you see that picture? You see you feel you feel happy, right? You feel hopeful, right? Okay, okay. Well, in the gospel, we we look so often we look at that pretty picture of the new life, the plant that comes out of the gospel. Okay, but it's only hopeful and it only makes sense because of the darkness that's around. Okay, so this morning we're going to talk about the darkness. Okay, but then talking about the darkness, it makes 
the hope that we have so much greater. Okay, so the question this morning is, what's the punishment for our sin? Now, we before we talk about that specific punishment, let me talk about two reasons why it's important that we know what that punishment is, okay, and, the, and why we talk about it. Okay, one is that we see just how terrible our sin is and how, our, how, how, uh, how much our guilt is before a holy God, okay? Think about this. A light punishment or, or a, light, a light sin deserves a really weighty punishment or a light punishment? Which one? A light punishment, right? If you do a small thing that's bad, then does that mean that you need to have your arm chopped off? No, no, absolutely not. No. Okay. You might have like your TV privileges taken away for an evening or something. Okay. Now you might think that's a big punishment, but that's not as bad as, you know, your arm being chopped off. Right. So the, what, however bad your sin is or your wrongdoing, whatever you do, that should equal the, the punishment, right? Now, if it's a big thing, if it's a really, really big thing, then that deserves a big punishment, doesn't it? Okay, like death. There you go. Okay, yeah. So you're tracking with it, okay? So that's important that, that however God speaks about our sin, okay, that tells us just how big a deal it is, right? However, that whatever that punishment is, then that tells us how big a deal sin is, okay? Whether it's light or whether it's weighty. You know what I mean when it, by, by weighty? means it's a big deal, okay? All right, so that's the first thing. But also, the second thing is, you know, however however weighty that punishment is shows just how great a Savior we need and, and ultimately how great a Savior we have, okay? Let me ask you a question. If you owe somebody five cents, okay, say you borrowed five cents from your sister, okay, and you owed five cents, okay, and somebody comes in, uh, let's say Emma comes in and says, hey, here's five cents or pays your sister five cents. Okay. Now that's cool. That's great. You're like, ah, I appreciate that. But is that a big, is that a big deal? No, because I mean, five cents is, is that much, right? You can't probably even buy a stick of gum anymore for it. Okay. That's not like five dollars or five million dollars. What if, what if you owed, what if you owed five million dollars to someone and somebody comes in and says, I'm, that's big. Somebody comes in and says, I'm going to pay your $5 million debt. That's a big deal, isn't it? That's a big deal. Okay, so the same way, when we see just how great a debt we have for our sin, we see how great a Savior we have. And we see how glorious and marvelous Jesus is, okay, because he paid far more than $5 million. Okay, so so that helps us see the, the depths of our sin and how bad it is helps us see how great a Savior we have. Okay, all right, so that's where we are. Okay, so what is that? What is that punishment? Well, we get a sense in, in Genesis. Remember, we talked a lot about Genesis recently. Okay, when, when God told Adam, don't eat from the fruit of that tree, what did he say would happen? You would die, okay? Now we get, as we read through Genesis and we get into, you know, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter chapter 4, we see they didn't die immediately, right? Okay, it wasn't just, so God was telling them it's not just physical death that you'll experience, but it's something deeper than that. It's a separation between you and me, okay? Now remember, God's good, right? God is good, and he's the source of all goodness, 
all beauty and all joy. Okay? So to be separated from God, it's to be separated from all of these things. Okay? Paul tells, Paul tells the, uh, he writes a letter to, uh, to the, uh, the church at Thessalonica. One church, he says, look, here's what happens to all those who are separated from God. He said, they'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Paul knew that's the best place to be. That's where all joy is. That's where all beauty is. That's where all peace is, is in the presence of the Lord. And he longed for that. And he knew the only way he could get that was through Jesus. That's why the gospel was so precious to him. But he also knew that that because of sin, the punishment of sin was to be separated from all of that. Okay, so so this punishment of sin, one of the parts of that is to be separated from what's good. Okay, separation from the enjoyment, all that we have that we have that's, that we long for. Okay, I've got to have a minor medical procedure tomorrow. And you know what the doctor told me? He said, you can't eat anything today. How many of you have ever been hungry? Yeah, that's my, that was my face too. Yeah. How many of you have ever been hungry? Yeah. How, how does that feel? That's terrible, right? 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 But you know what? Breakfast is coming or dinner's coming or, okay, you have hope that that, that feeling is going to be fulfilled. You're separated from your food like I am right now. But you know what? I know after that medical procedure is done, I, I can eat again. So I'm hopeful for that. Just a minute. So I'm hopeful for that. Okay. Now, I don't think any of us have experienced starvation, but you push that to the extreme, there's a huge desire for something that you know is good. Okay. So to be separated from God in our punishment, one side of that is to be separated from all that's good and to never have the hope of having that fulfilled. Okay. But there's another side of that. Not only is it separation from all that is good in God, but it is experiencing punishment or experiencing suffering of what we do have, of what is bad. Okay. There's a story that Jesus tells of a rich man who didn't care for other people, didn't trust in God and Lazarus who suffered a lot. Okay. But he loved God. He loved God. And Jesus tells a story of Lazarus and this rich man. And when they both die, Lazarus goes to be with the Lord and where he, he no longer suffers. He's comforted. He has endless joy. That's the smile that was probably on his face, just like yours. But the rich man, he goes to a place of eternal punishment. He goes to hell. And Jesus tells the story of this parable, uh, of this, this story, and that the rich man asked that Lazarus, he sees Lazarus across this huge, like, canyon, okay, that separates him and the place, the, the place where Lazarus is. And he asks, he says, can Lazarus come and just drop a uh, drop of water? on my tongue to quench my thirst and take away this burning that's around me. And the Lord tells him, no. So you can't have that. You had that opportunity while you are on earth, but you can't have that now. And so what we learn from that is not only is the, you know, not only is the person who's lost and separated from God through the grace in Christ, separated from all the things that are good, okay, that, that canyon that separates him says there's no hope of him getting that. But there's also punishment. There's also all that's experienced there in hell is terrible. It's terrifying. Is that that's not fun? That's not good, right? That, we talked about the darkness and that forest fire, right? That's the darkness. That's the reality that's there. Okay. There's no relief given. 
Okay? There's no relief that's given. There's no joy. There's no comfort that's there. So we learn from this. When we look at it, there's that apart from the grace of Christ that we have in the gospel, this is why we in the church, this is why we make such a big deal out of Jesus. Okay? Because just in that forest fire, you know, forest, that fire-ridden uh, forest, we see that little green sense of hope that Jesus is our only hope in the midst of that kind of darkness and that kind of weighty punishment. Okay, that apart from the grace of God in Christ, that what awaits us is an everlasting torment, deep anguish, no relief. But what we see in this, remember, God is just. He's not going to punish anybody beyond what they deserve. But the way God punishes shows us just how weighty sin is, but also shows us that we need a great Savior. Right? If sin is that great, do we need a Savior that's worth five cents? Or five bazillion dollars. Five bazillion dollars. And that's how we see how glorious and marvelous that Jesus is. The the only son of God. The one who was perfect. Who came. And he said, you know what? That's your punishment. But I will take that for you. I will take that weighty punishment. I will put it on myself. I'll hang on the cross. I'll die the death that you deserve. Being separated from God. But the grave can't hold me because I'm perfect and I can bear that punishment and I can pay it for you. And the Father will raise me, seat me at his right hand. I will sit there and he'll give me all who come to me. And that's why he calls us to come to him through the gospel. That's why we have such hope in Jesus. Because we have such great, uh, so, such weighty a punishment that we can put full trust in such weighty and great a Savior. All right, let me pray for us, and you guys can go sit back down. Father God, Lord, it's hard to talk about dark things. It's hard to to look at the sin that we have and talk about it, even as even amongst children. But Father, may we be faithful to point out the brokenness that exists so that we can see the one who can truly fix it. Because Father, if sin is light, then our Savior will look light. And that's not the way, that's not the picture you paint in Scripture, is that Jesus is most precious. Father, when we see our sin for what it is, we see just how precious Jesus is and how much we need Him. So I pray, Father, that this morning, these minds, young and old alike, we would all help, uh, that you would help us see Jesus more clearly. Help us see our sin for what it is. And help us cling to Jesus in hope of what he promises. It's in Jesus' precious name that I pray. Amen. Stand, please. Thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in all, cause Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Say
sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as
makes my life upon all this world reveals and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted lost, spent and worthless now. We concluded uh, Christ's high priestly prayer last week. 
And so just to highlight those things for you, he prayed four things specifically. You could probably draw more out of the text in terms of what he prayed for us, but four things that I'll just bring back to your attention is he prayed that we might be kept in the name of, that we might be kept in God's name, that uh, we might be one as, uh, even as they are one, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, specifically here, the Father and the Son. He prayed that we would be kept from the evil one, and then he prayed that we might be sanctified in the truth. Now, you can go back and listen to last week's sermon for an unpacking of each one of those things, because uh, you may or may not look at it and understand it at face value. So go back and check those out, and so you can understand exactly how Jesus, as our high priest, as our intercessor, is praying for us. So what I told you I would do this week, last week, is I told you that when we got to the end, when we got to being sanctified in truth, I talked about having thoughts about how that further applies in our life and maybe trying to explore the mechanics of that. So that's what I've done this week. I took time to write these things out. So I want to I want to convey these things to you so you can see some of the outworkings, the byproducts, the mechanics of what it means or what it looks like to be sanctified in truth. And I brought up for you Three fundamental truths for the Christian life. I, we, we brought up the fact that God is holy, that God's word is true, and then what? That Jesus is Lord. So those are the three things we want to look at. Those are tantamount and foundational to the Christian faith. You can't really get far if you don't think God is holy. You can't get very far if you don't think His Word is true. And you sure don't get far if Jesus is not Lord. Okay, you've got major problems. Are there other truths? Absolutely. Absolutely there are, but these are foundational. These are first-tier issues that you cannot get wrong. Okay, so that's why we're just going to camp out on these specifically. So I'm going to bring up several passages for you so you can jot those down, make a mental note, uh, you know, a pencil note, pen note, whatever you want to do, or a digital note, and uh, just just to stay up with me. So here's my objective today. I want to show how the holiness of God, the Word of God, and the Lordship of Christ lead to our sanctification. Sanctification, again, means to be distinct or distinguished, to be set apart, just as Jesus prays to the Father. He says, Holy Father, He says, you are the Holy One. You are the distinguished one. You are the sacred one, the one who is other and separate. He says, make them other and separate as well through truth. So He's praying that they would be holy as we are said to be holy, as we are called to be holy. Um, So three truths we'll look at. Truth number one, God is holy. God is holy. God is distinct. Okay, so I want you to see this because I'm going to fly through these. This is important as we posture ourselves to who God is. And you can't posture yourselves to who God is unless you're regarding Him as, as, as a holy God. And that holiness, the way that we posture ourselves towards that holiness is realizing that We should be cut out, that we should be separated, that we should be distinguished. And I believe that happens when we rightly posture ourselves to God as holy or when we rightly regard Him as as holy. So a few things with regard to the holiness of God that I want to share with you is this first uh, foundational truth. So the holiness of God does this. It prohibits the, the comparison 
of any other God because God is so distinct and so lofty, you can't compare him to anybody else. And where do we see that in the scriptures? Well, the nature of holiness itself tells us that. But Moses writes about these very things in Exodus chapter 15. You can turn to me if you want. I'm just going to read you a few verses. Exodus chapter 15. Let's see how my Bible drilling is. Okay, Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Listen to this. Listen to what Moses says. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Now, this is a rhetorical question because there are no other gods. Now, there are false gods, Dagon, Molech, Ashtoreth, and so many others. There's gods that you and I erect in our lives because sometimes we're guilty of idolatry. It was John Calvin who said our hearts are idol factories. So we see that all the time. But here were gods that they, they, they built lives around. Even though they were not really there, even though they were false gods, they were still worshipped as though they were reality to these people. And so Moses comes up and he says, look, who is like you among the gods? Obviously, it's no one. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Moses arrives on the scene. He's calling out this rhetorical statement, this rhetorical question, who is like you among the gods? No one. The reason that is written is to convey to you that there is no one that you can compare to a holy God. There's no one. There's none other than God. And then we see something else pretty interesting in the, in the book of Exodus, where Moses encounters this burning bush. And we all remember the story well, right? So let's see where the holiness manifests itself in this text. Okay, so Moses comes up to this burning bush, you know, and the bush speaks to him. We know that it to be God, right? And he says, Moses, remove your sandals for the place that you're standing is what? holy ground. Why is the ground holy? Because of the presence of holiness, the presence of a king. So you have holy ground. Moses is to take off his sandals because that's the thing you do in the presence of holiness. And he approaches the bush and he and this burning bush, he and the Lord have a dialogue. And this is during the time that he's supposed to go to Pharaoh and say, let the people of God go. And this is what God would instruct him to do. So Moses is pushing back. Moses is having a very human moment and saying, who am I to go to Pharaoh and say, do such and such a thing? He's Pharaoh. I have no, I have no, uh, no, no, no power over Pharaoh. I have no clout. I have no position that I can tell him what to do and that he would listen to me. And God says, I'm telling you, go. And then Moses finally acquiesces and he says this. He says, okay, fine. Who should I say sent me? And God says, tell him, I am that I am. Now, isn't that an interesting way when God has all these names for himself? I mean, there's anthropomorphic language all through the scriptures, a way in speaking in human terms to communicate a loftier truth that we might not otherwise understand. That's what, I, that's what it means to speak anthropomorphically. And so you have the lion of Judah, the lamb. You have all of these ways that the Lord is, is, is mentioned and he's spoken of here. And here he says, tell him, I am that I am. Well, what is he essentially saying? He's saying, I'm the only one of my likeness. There's no one that I can say to compare myself to. You know, because God could have said, tell him someone that's like a Pharaoh, but better. Tell him it's someone that's like a king, but better. But that's not what he said. He said, tell him I am that I am. And that's the answer that God gave Moses. Why? Because God is holy. 
Because God is holy, and God's holiness is written throughout the Scriptures. I mean, it's just there. There's no one like Him. There's no one at all. God is unique. He's distinct. He's sacred. He's dangerous. He's not common. He's not ordinary. He's not casual. His very name is holy. Do you understand that when the scribes, and I've shared this with you before, when the scribes would be recording the sacred text, they would use a writing instrument, and then when they would come to the name Yahweh, not only would they not say it, but they would come to the name Yahweh, and they would disregard the writing instrument they were using, only to pick up a fresh one and write that name one time. One time in this, and then disregard or discard that writing instrument, never to be used again, because the name of the Lord was so holy that they could only write it one time, and then that pen was of no use to them. He says, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you majestic in holiness? God's beauty, God's majesty, His king, his, 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 his sovereignty, these things are unparalleled. His holiness is unparalleled. Listen, when we speak of God's attributes, how we understand that theologically is that all of His attributes flow through the filter of His holiness. In other words, You are loving because God is loving, but you are not loving like God is loving. You can be jealous like God is jealous because he shared that attribute with you, but you can't be jealous like he is jealous, right? You can be angry just as God is angry sometimes. You can express emotion just as God expresses emotions, but you can't express them like him, not exactly like him. Why? Because you're not God, because you're not distinct like him, because there's no one like him. And of course, when I say God, I mean the triune God, right? The holiness of God prohibits us from comparing to him anything else at all. And that's, that's one foot out of the gate. That's one foot in being sanctified in truth, that if we can square up to God and say, you know what, there's no one like you. There's no one as sacred or distinct or pure as you. And if we can get that far That will begin to curtail or direct or shape the way we live, move, and have our being. And that's just one foot out of the gate. Listen, the holiness of God prohibits us from comparing Him to anything else, but it also commands or demands justice. When we see the justice of God portrayed throughout the Scriptures, what are we really seeing? We're seeing His holiness. His holiness demands that he responds to sin, right? It it demands that he deals with it. And you say, well, what about sometimes it seems like people just get away? No, they don't. People don't get away with any sin. They're either, he he might punish to a degree on earth, but still there's eternal punishment, right? They're either going to be punished in hell for eternity or Jesus has received that punishment. Justice is always served. Bar none, without exception, justice is always served. Why? Because God is holy. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden after how many sins? One. One. God made man and, and, and woman, his, his beloved creation, that, that, that bear his image. And his affections were on them like nothing else in creation. Not trees, not animals, nothing. All these things are great, but it's only us that are fearfully and wonderfully made. Only humanity that bears the, image of G- bears the image of God, right? And what does he do with Adam and Eve? They sin one time and he says, you're out. You're out of the garden. Not only you're out of the garden, but here's some other penalties that come along with this. 
the least of which not, I mean, not being death, right? There it was, death, the culmination, you're going to die. But also, it's not that you're just going to die. I fully believe that Adam and Eve at that point needed to be regenerated. I believe at that point they became lost and needed to follow and trust Yahweh, just as you and I have to. Why? Because sin entered. How were they different from us at that time? They sinned against God. Boom, sin nature right there. We're born with what? Sin nature. Estranged from God, as as Paul said, uh, separated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Moses, who was so faithful for so long to God, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. Why? He was so faithful. Would you dare compare yourself to Moses? <laughs> no. No. I'd be lucky to have Moses' table scraps. We wouldn't compare ourselves and say, I'm, I'm, I'm about as good as Moses, right? Lead hundreds of thousands of Israelites for 40 years to the wilderness and, you know, do that. No, at one point God said, Moses, I want you to, I want you to take this uh, staff and I want you to hit this rock and water is going to come out. You do what I say. Moses does it. And then later he says, Moses, I want you to get water from this rock, but you're going to speak to it this time instead of hitting it with your staff. And Moses does what? He hits it with his staff. He's not supposed to do that. He didn't follow God's commands. And then later you see the penalty or the consequence of that because right before they're ushered into the promised land, God pulls him aside and says, listen, son, you're not going to make it there. Why? Because you struck the rock instead of speaking to it. How do we read between the lines? God is saying, you didn't regard me as holy. What happened to Uzzah when he touched the Ark of the Covenant? Uzzah's just trying to transport the Ark of the Covenant with these other men from, from, uh, from Baal Judah or the house of Abinadab to Jerusalem. And they're carrying it and it slips and he tries to catch it to keep the Ark of the Covenant from landing in the mud. And he touches it just to try to keep it from getting dirty and God kills him. Why? Because Uzzah dared to presume that his hands were of greater purity than the earth which God made himself. That's why God killed Uzzah. Because God is showing his holiness. You starting to see this? It's a big deal. Were Uzzah's, were, we don't know Uzzah's motives. I mean, it's pretty clear. I mean, he just wanted to, to keep the Ark of the Covenant. But it's not beyond God or above God to say, I'm going to make an example because at the end of the day, what matters most is that you know God. Not just know him because you've heard his name, not just know him because some preacher talks about him, but that you know him. And to know him means to know that he's holy and that he's distinct, and that his holiness demands justice. This is why scripture says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of them. Demands justice. It also demands humility. Listen, Moses fell to his face with when, whenever he saw the burning bush. Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord Jesus and becomes undone. It ruins him. Some translations say, I am ruined. I am undone. I am unra- Literally, I am unraveled. <laughs> the angels, the, the, the seraphim, are created as Matthew Henry writes it this way. Uh, he writes in a weird English, but he says, these seraphim with the six wings they had, two they covered their feet, two they covered their face, and with two they flew. He says, they're created to burn with bedazzling luster for our Lord. What does that that mean? They're created. A lot of different angels, right? They're created to pronounce or to proclaim the holiness of God. Because what are they doing? They're singing. 
They're singing songs antiphonally. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. Scholars call it the trihagion. They are, they are created for that purpose. God created for himself a, a creature that would not fail in pronouncing his holiness. Why? Because he deserves to be pronounced as holy. Because he is holy. John fell as if dead, the scripture says, when confronted with the living God at Patmos. Revelation 4.8 shows us that myriads and myriads gather around the throne singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holiness, holiness, holiness represented all throughout the scripture. I think there's a message that God wants to send us. And, 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 and taking it back, being sanctified in truth, that final prayer of Jesus in the high priestly prayer, don't you think that that is a great first step when we square up to the reality that God is holy? Don't you see how that can work in sanctifying us in truth? If, if I see God as holy and it demands justice and it demands humility and there's nothing to compare, then I need to be very careful. Not that he's a cosmic killjoy wanting to kill me, but that I can never, ever afford to be trite or trivial about the holiness of God. And that's a great first step into being sanctified in truth or being distinguished or set apart as the fathers, as God's. It demands humility. The holiness of God also changes our perspective. Your view of sin changes. Listen to this. Sin is no longer the damaging of man, but the dishonoring of God. There's a big difference in just saying, oh, it just damages man. It just hurts you. When we confront people over sin, what's our focus? Listen, you've, you've really discredited yourself there. You've really caused people to question your character. And are these things true? Yeah. But what's most important here, that you've damaged your character, that you've discredited yourself, or that you've become an offense to God's holiness? What's the bigger issue? Offense. So when we start thinking in terms like that, it changes the way that we live, move, and have our being. Sin is no longer the choice of pleasure, but the loss of pain. I'm sorry, uh, but the loss of pleasure. I'm sorry. Sin is no longer the choice of pleasure, but the loss of pleasure. True pleasure, true joy, true excitement, true living is living outside of sinful conduct. That's true joy and true living. When our perspective changes because of the holiness of God, this is what happens. We no longer have sorrow over being caught in our sin, but sorrow over offending God. That happens a lot. We get caught, we do something, ah, I'm sorry I got caught. Or maybe I'm sorry that it hurts your feelings. You know, how many times have I had to come to my wife and repent and say, I'm sorry, my words were strong. Please forgive me. You know, and I'm like, I'm grieved because of how it affected her. I'm, I'm grieved because she's crying because I was an idiot. You know, and that does grieve me, and it should. But it should grieve me that I've offended my Lord. And do our minds go there? Do we grieve? Do we grieve that we, that I am a constant offense to his holiness? It should grieve us. Our perspective should be changed when we really come square uh, face to face with his holiness. Listen, the holiness of God should not be trivialized. I mentioned God is dangerous. Hebrews 10.31 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, but we, we, we do trivialize him. We market his name because it's financially prosperous for us to market his name. Jesus is your homeboy. He's your BFF. I've seen a shirt that says, I have a secret admirer. His name is Jesus. <laughs> we market these things and we make 
tons and tons of money off of marketing Jesus. Here's what happens when you don't fear God, people. Let me, let me flesh this out for you. Here's what happens. Here's how this works when you don't fear God, when you don't treat him as holy. It looks like a sex-driven culture that promotes an antichrist agenda through every shred of media available. It looks like mothers and fathers pimping out their daughters and sons and sacrificing the glory of God on the altar of sensuality. It looks like an ever-increasing tolerance towards homosexuality and a fading intolerance towards ungodliness. It looks like derelict parents who disregard the authority of God's word and his holiness and they pave the way for their children's sinful indulgences. It looks like destroying the life of an unborn image bearer in the name of health while in best cases attempting to mask what is hypocrisy, selfishness, and idolatry. And sometimes they don't mask it at all, do they? The holiness of God should create within us humility, fear, and love. And if that truth creates in you humility, fear, and love, you will be sanctified by that truth. You will be distinguished from this world by that truth. So we are set apart in a response to the holiness of God, but we are also set apart in our response to God's word. The second truth is this, God's word is true. God is holy, God's word is true. Second foundational, fundamental truth. God is truth, by the way, by definition. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So God is truth. Let me give a clarification. God's word is true as long as it is interpreted correctly. I understand that I sound like a Mormon now because they'll give you that line all day long. But the truth is, the reality is, Yes, we read the scriptures. And if I read in the scriptures that for every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and earth and under the earth, and I read that and it says this, and I'm like, okay, this means that this doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved one day. This just means that everybody will finally realize he is everything he promised that he was or is. But you have others like Mormons who have looked me in the face and say, no, 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 no. This means that one day, one day, even those who apostate, they will one day in the grace of the Lord, they will be brought back. They will be brought back because every knee will bow. No, no, no. Every knee bowing is in subjection. You and I subject ourselves, and it is glorious and it is good, but there will be those that he will force into subjection and they will know forevermore that he is everything he said he is. How should this reality, how should truth shape the life of a believer? Christian living is this. It's forward. It's active. It's progressive. Christian living is that kind of living. Matthew 4, 4 says, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. This bread of life is not to hold you in neutrality. It's not so that, okay, you're out of darkness, but really not moving anywhere else. No. The, the pattern that you see is he who began a good work in you will be faithful to his completion. You see the, the continuous language of uh, he is conforming you to the image of God. You see the language of, you know, the gospel is saving you. That's the language of the Bible, and I'll give you those references in a moment. And you see that in the Bible. So it's a, it's a, it's a work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's a process that's happening. Sanctification is a process. Salvation is a process that, that happens at one point and continues to happen. All in the same. But Matthew says what 
man does not live by bread alone, but from every mouth that comes from, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. To live doesn't just mean to exist. It means to live with forward momentum. The idea here is not just to get by, but to thrive. Not thrive in a, in a, in a prosperity gospel. All right, let me go ahead and let me go ahead and cut that off at the pass. I don't mean that. Not thrive financially, not, not thrive in all these ways with your health, but to thrive in the sense that Jesus says that I come that you may have life and have life abundantly. Thrive in the joy of knowing Jesus. Just what Paul said and you read. Here's what I count as loss. All things compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what this gets at. That's the idea of thriving. Not gospel prosperity but I came that you may have abundant life, life in Jesus, life in love, life in knowing him, life in where he's sanctifying you and, and, and where his peace comes over you and his word washes over you and it transforms you and all the while making you more like Jesus. That's good. The words of God are living and active, therefore they are life producing. They are active. So let's talk for a minute, minute through the mechanics of living by the word of God. Again, if we square up to the reality that God is holy, that influences our life because we respond to that holiness. Just as Isaiah responded, just as John fell to his feet, just as so many others fell to their feet in fear at the presence of God. The, re the response of Moses, who, who, who before, he was, before he was disciplined and said, you can't go, you know, God said, what would you ask me? He said, I just want to, I want to see one thing. I want, I want to see your face. I want to see you. He says, okay, you got to hide because you can't handle it. And he passes by. And then Moses' face is shining as he literally uh, is shining as he goes down the mountain to reconvene with Israel. That's the effect of being in the presence of holiness. So God's word is true. God's truth does this. It sets us free, free to move Christ's word. Free from here to move here because the idea biblically is to be rescued from darkness and to be constantly conformed to the image of Jesus to where you are progressively going towards that. And this is supported by several texts. I've already mentioned them. I told you I'd give you the reference. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to its completion. 1 Corinthians 15.2, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you held fast to the word I preached to you. You see, the active work of saving and completing you is a work that sanctifies us in truth. God uses truth to do these things. The holiness of God drives us. The holiness of God informs our decision, and it distinguishes us as we respond to that holiness. The truth of God's word grounds us. It roots us. It implants within us so that we might not sin against God. It gives us instructions. It's our tutor so that we might make right decisions that do what? Glorify God and work to sanctify us. It's a really simple formula for sanctification. Here it is. You ready? Ultimately, we need to know what the Bible says and do what the Bible says. Children, you hear me? Calvin, you hear me over there? Ultimately, we know what the Bible says and we have to do what the Bible says, right? That's, that's, that's Christianity 101. Someone comes to you and says, what, what, must, what, what, what must I do you know, to, 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 to follow Jesus? Well, know his word, do his word, live his word. And I realize that's a, that's a strong simplification. 
So let's walk into that just a minute. So knowing means to rightly receive the intended information and instruction from Scripture, considering context, application, audience, intent, etc. We just know what it says. Understand what's right there. And then doing is a little bit different story because there's problems accompanied with our doing because we're these broken cisterns, we're these broken vessels that are, that are, that are trying to live out truth, but we can't keep our legs up under us because we're sinners. You say, well, isn't, if we, if we talk too much about doing in it legalism, absolutely not. First of all, first of all, <laughs> the, the Bible's filled with doing. Go and do. Go, go, go. So it's not legalistic to do. Legalism is doing what the Bible says in order that you might find favor with God. Being sanctified in truth is doing what the Bible says because God has already placed favor on you. There's a difference in the two. One is a response to the goodness of God. The other is to try to earn the goodness of God, which is an impossible task. It's a response from a heart of humility, gratitude, and worship. That's, that's our doing. What our doing should be accompanied with a heart of humility, gratitude, and worship. I mean, Romans 12, I mean, Paul talks about your, 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 your service, your worship. He says this is our spiritual act of worship. I mean, we're doing, we're, we're, we're worshiping with gratitude and humility. It's important. There's some common problems in our doing this. So here's some, here's some things for me to caution you. Okay, and I'm going to say some things that are, that are kind of difficult. I'm going to grind your beans for just a second. But I promise you this. This is not because I thought of you in particular. This is issues that I've had in my own life that God has been brought a reckoning <laughs> into my life. So, so if the shoe fits, fine. If this stings a little, if you're convicted, you know, uh, throw, throw, don't throw stones at me. You need to take issue with the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to go ahead and save myself from danger here um, because these are things that the Lord really, you know, brought reckoning into my life and is still doing so, by the way. Um, and I'll get to that in just a second. But briefly, here's some common problems in our doing when we do with legalism. Again, I, I address what legalism is. And it's easy for us to do. We, we, we think we're, I'm going to do this, I'm going to curry favor with the Lord, and that's dangerous because you can't, you can't earn any favor, you can't curry any favor, you can't have more favor than you already have. I mean, don't you remember that, that God provides from the riches of His grace? There's an endless well from which He draws to lavish His love on the saints. You can't get any more than that. You can't do anything more than that. Remember, he set his affections upon you when you didn't know heads or tails before the foundations of the world. Those affections were set upon you. So you can't do anything. So be careful of your legalistic doing. But there's also doing as a moralistic response or for behavioral modification, but with no real heart change, which is almost like legalism, except it doesn't have the doing it to have favor with God. It's just doing it to be perceived as something that maybe you're not. You want people to think you're something that maybe you're not, so you, you, you present yourself as this. And it's a, it's a form of spiritual virtue signaling, right? If we can borrow that, that fun term for today. You know, it's, hey, I, I'm this, I'm that. Maybe I'll do this when this person's around, or I'll do that when that person's around. Problem is, where does that come from? Where does that behavior, where does that doing come from? Is it from a heart of contrition? Is it from a, a heart of gratitude and worship? Or is it something that you're wanting to present an image or a picture so that someone buys what you're selling? 
But here's the difficult one. I think we get into problems in our doing when we do things with fractional commitment. Now, we're sinners. So our track record's never perfect, right? I mean, we, we, one, one day we use our, our mouth, we use our lips to, to praise the Lord, and the next day we, we defame him. I get that. I get that. I, I know that. But sometimes we do just enough to feel better about ourselves. Let me just, let me, let me, let me dance on this floor for just a little bit. Ephesians 5, 3. Paul is talking to believers. Paul is saying, listen, you have new life in Christ. So let me share with you what that new life should look like. He's instructing them as babes in the faith. And the instructions for them really isn't any different than the instructions for you all. Some of you have, uh, are, are seasoned believers. You've walked with Jesus. But something you know above many is that you still need the gospel. Is that you still walk out of line. You still are in need of grace daily. So one line that Paul shares with them is this. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So he makes it very clear that whatever falls under the camp of sensuality, whatever falls under the camp of sexual morality or impurity or covetousness should not be listed among you. If someone evaluates your life and they say, okay, I've watched you for 30 years in a list, there's going to be a lot of things. And Paul's saying here, here's the ideal situation. They should not be able to list sexual immorality, covetousness or sensuality among you. But one of our problems with doing this, one of our problems with doing in this area is that we make allowances for little, not realizing that the effects are much. Let me ask you this. Would you drink a gallon jug of water if it had one drip of strychnine in it? <laughs> no. Heck no. Well, no, that's, that's nuts. You probably wouldn't swim in a pool that had one droplet of strychnine. Because strychnine will kill you. If you ingest it, one of the most deadly poisons, you probably wouldn't jump in the water. But we don't apply. I don't apply that mentality to the dangers of sin, to the dangers of sensuality, sexual morality and things of that nature. Now, I'm not getting ready to repent something that's going to disqualify me or anything like that. So if you're holding on to your seat, you can let go. All right. It's, it's not that. I have the same daily struggles that everybody else. We flip the TV on. There's something here. There's something there. We make excuses. We say, well, you know what? I'm going to I'm just going to skip past that stuff. You know, I'm going to I'm going to fast forward through it. I'm going to turn my head while my wife watches so that my wife can say when it's over and then I can look again. Someone might say, it doesn't make me sin or stumble. That's not a temptation for me. It's not real. These things that I watch, they're not real. It's just two actors, right? I don't care what it is, if it's, if it's blatant pornography or if it's, or if it's just sensuality. 
If it's, if it's, if it's, I would even say some of your most basic, seemingly benign form of sensuality, does, does, do we have in the scriptures any reason for looking at this and saying, oh, well, there's caveats here. As, as long as my wife can look at it and tell me when I can look again, I'm fine. As long as I have fast forward, as long as I can skip the chapter, as long as I can do these things, as long as I'm watching it through VidAngel, as long as I'm doing these things, then I'm good to go. I'm good to go. But I go back to this one word, and this is by not even close to all the Bible has to say about sexual immorality. But I go to this one line, and Jesus says, these things should not, be, not even be named among the saints. Not even be listed. We justify on-screen sensuality because it's not real. Let me ask you this, wives, and don't answer out loud. If you catch your husband looking at pornography, and he says, it's okay, honey, it's not real, would that be okay with you? Would that suffice? But they're just actors. They don't love each other. It's just actors. You know? What if you're watching a show that's maybe PG or PG-13 and you, there's, there's a lot of coarse jesting, there's a lot of sensual conversation. There's no flesh involved. There's no touching. There's no kissing. There's none of that stuff. But there's conversation that makes light of something that God made to be pure and beautiful. But there's joking and there's all of these things. How do we swallow that when the Scripture says sensuality? Immorality, covetousness should not even be named among us. And I do find it interesting that he lists covetousness right after he says sexual immorality and sensuality. That's not happenstance. Here's what I think happens when we do these things. And this is, I, I believe, what the Lord has, is constantly showing me. Okay. You want me to name some names, not people names, but you want me to you want me to just say some things out there. Okay, here you go. All right. So again, this is if you're upset, this is the Holy Spirit. Get mad at him. I've watched The Office a ton of times. But you tell me one time, one time, one time that Steve Carell or anybody says that's what she said, and it's not objectifying a woman and sensual. One time. You tell me when you've heard that joke. And it hasn't been sensual or immoral. I know. I know. I'm grinding your beans. I get it. I get it. I've, I've seen the show a ton of times. I've seen Seinfeld where there's no flesh. There's, there's nothing seemingly wrong when you're just watching it. And then all of a sudden, the, the whole show is driven by a theme of sexuality. It really is when you listen to the conversation. And, and, and I've seen it. I've watched it and I make these justifications like you're not seeing anything dirty. You know, they're just saying stuff. I don't subscribe to that. I don't believe in that. But then I'm like, after all my justifications are laid out on the table, I can't help but come back to one text that says these things must not even be named among you. What do I think that means? Listen, I think this is how it plays out. When we watch such things, it might be easy to justify or create excuses for why we are watching or for what we are doing. But... When we watch these things, agree with me or not, when we watch these things, we are gaining from darkness. Ephesians, Paul says, listen, we shouldn't even speak of the things that they are doing. And I think the intent of the law there, as opposed to the letter of the law, is that some things 
we should have no part in at all. I mean, that's exactly what it says. We should have no part. We shouldn't even speak on these things. The top 10 shows, the top 10 shows of 2020, the top 10, I IMDB'd every last one of them to read for, for, you know, for elusive content or, or uh, lewd content, sexual content, all that stuff. Only seven out of the 10 were, 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 were very inappropriate. Uh, the, queen, the, the, the Queens of Gambit, the Babysitter's Club, that was one good one, the Babysitter's Club. So you are safe to watch the Babysitter's Club, by the way. Pin 15, Something's Creek, not Dawson's. Um, Feel Good, The Virtues, What We Do in Shadows, Pea Valley, Parks and Recreation. Parks and Recreation, are you kidding? I've seen Parks and Recreation, okay? I've seen it, and sometimes I guess I was so numb to the thing, some of the innuendos, some of the jokes, some of the jesting, and all that stuff, and then all of a sudden the Lord comes back and hits me between the eyes and says, but that can be named among you, because you have profited from darkness. You have gained from darkness. We're profiting from darkness. We are being entertained and appeased by the things that God hates, and that's, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Do you follow me? We are being entertained. We are gaining from things that oppose themselves to a holy God. And, 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 and I'm not thinking of a single person but myself. Because I'm writing this, and I'm like, oh my goodness. And I wrote Seinfeld in the office, and I have to delete it and write it again. I'm like, no, I'm leaving it off. The Lord's like, no, you're putting it on. I'm like, no, I'm leaving it off. You put it on. And I'm like, okay, I'll say it. Fine, I'll say it. They'll hate me, but I'll say it. And there it is. So now I can watch, you know, Babysitter's Club and uh, Caillou. That's what I can watch, right? Y'all calm down. To gain from these things is called sordid gain. Let me just give you one example. It's like, it's like me owning a brothel, but I never attend. I just get all the money. Oh, but I've never been there. I don't indulge, I don't engage, but I profit from promiscuity. I didn't see flesh, I didn't touch flesh but I profit from it. That's sordid gain. And how is that any different than what we allow ourselves to see, what we allow ourselves to justify? And I'm just mentioning some of the, some of the ones that aren't what we would say are the heavy hitters. If you want to talk about Game of Thrones, it's appalling at how many Christians readily admit we watch Game of Thrones. It's profiting from darkness. Listen to this. Saying yes to denying yourself and no to indulging yourself is the road that leads to sanctification. Saying yes to denying yourself, but no to indulging yourself is the road that leads to sanctification. There's a reason John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It'll be killing you. Truth is what drives our decisions. It comes down to what we really believe about the Word of God. 
So if you were to come to me and said, I've been watching X, Y, Z, or if I come to you and say, I've been watching X, Y, Z, and we present each other with one text that says, let not these things be listed even among you, we would then both have to ask ourselves, do you really believe what the word of God says? Do you really want to be sanctified in truth? Because that's the road that leads to it. Self-denial, not self-indulgence. We're set apart from the world by posturing ourselves rightly towards God. We are set apart from the world by living in accordance with God's word. And finally, we are set apart from the world by subjecting ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus. It's 1132. Bear with me for just a minute. I'm going to read through this for you. Here we go. The Lordship of Jesus. Romans 10, 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. It's important that you understand the word Lord here. There's Lord that is used as a name for God, as a name for Yahweh. And then there's Lord capital L-O-R-D, as opposed to capital L, all caps O-R-D, there's Lord as Adonai, as sovereign, as lordship, ruler, boss. We cannot claim Jesus as Lord and therefore claim to be in subjection to him if we don't follow his truth. Those two do not connect. doesn't mean we don't falter or fail, but as a general pattern in our life. That's why John says he who makes a practice of sinning is not born of God. Does your life reflect the Lordship of Christ? Does your life reflect that He has control of your life? See, in so many areas, this is not a problem for us. It's not a problem with our lives reflecting that we have employers, is it? We're at the job the other day, and the boss shows up. Not Austin, okay, because I'm a boss, all right? So get off it. So, so, so Chris Greer, the boss, shows up. I'm working. And I go into this solving long division in my brain. So it makes me look like I'm really thinking on something. You know, if, if I don't know what I'm doing, I'm like, okay, long division. Okay, 365,000 divided by, you know, uh, 458. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'll work through that till the day I die. I never figured out. So, you know, so when my boss shows up, you know, it's like I, I, I am fully aware that I am in subjection to him. And my life reflects that. He can hire me. He can fire me. He can, he can demote me. He can take, you know, he can, he can make my paycheck less. He can do all those things. We have no problems with our lives reflecting that we have spouses. No problem with that. And I mean this in a good way. My life, 16 years married to Sarah, has been a, a process of evolving, an involvement to accommodate the growth of my wife, the changes of my wife. And this is good. And we do the same thing for one another. She changes, perspective changes, desires change, passions change. And to a degree, I change with those because I'm reflecting that I realize that I have a spouse. We have no problem with that. We have no problems with our lives reflecting that we have financial obligations or responsibilities. But here's the question. Do our lives reflect that Jesus is not, that, that, that Jesus is not just God, but has specific lordship and rule and has us in subjection under him? So this is how it all comes together. Although God in Christ does the conforming work, listen to this, all of these fundamental truths are won or lost in the battlefield of the mind. When we think rightly, we do what? We behave rightly. Correct orthodoxy leads to correct orthopraxy. It's a clear theme in the Scriptures. Clear theme, Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be renewed in your mind. Ephesians 4, 23, new life in Christ. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner, manner of life 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Colossians 3.10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, the mind. And finally, Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, noble, honorable, just, pure, whatever is lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, he tells you to do what? Think on such things. He doesn't say feel doesn't say emote and follow those emotions. He says, think. You're renewed in the mind. And it's important that we think rightly about the holiness of God, the truth of God's word, and the lordship of Jesus. Listen, the holiness of God drives us to the word of God. It's the word of God that we find instructions to practically working out the lordship of Jesus. All of this drives us into subjection. And then finally, when this happens... We are being sanctified in the truth. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful that the sanctifying work is ultimately up to you, God, but you make it very clear that if you, that if we draw near to you, that you will draw near to us. Lord, there's an aspect where sanctification is tandem. Lord, we realize you're doing the heavy li lifting, Lord, you, 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 you set your affections upon us. Father, you, you, you drew us, you predestined us, you did all these things for us. And we, we readily admit that, but we still see in the text that we're to draw near to you. We're to pursue you. We're to pursue godliness, holiness. Lord, we're to deny ourselves. Lord, you call us to so much action. So we can't just say, look, I'm just going to sit here and, and do nothing until the Lord forces me into movement. You can do that if you want, but, but that doesn't seem to be the way the, the word is laid out regarding Christian activity and, and, and new life in Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would bring us before these fundamental truths so that they might help us in our living and in our moving and, 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 and in our being. Lord, so we might represent you well with our life, that we might be sanctified in truth. Help us to live a life that way, such as we're purposed to do, so that others may see our good works and glorify you. Lord, help us to be about your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.